I think that most people who pick up the Bible, and it's not just a matter of not knowing the Hebrew, they really don't have a clue as to what's going on. Now, you could say, I have the benefit of our commentary tradition, and I think that's part of it. I, I, I don't think you have to know Rashi to know what's going on, but it's helpful to know what Rashi and the other rabbis are pointing to, and to say, look, this is a place where we have a discussion about what something means. The Bible is not full of answers. It's, it's full of a combination of questions and discussions, and some answers. I mean, it, it does. I'm, I'm not saying that when it says that you should keep Shabbat, that that's just a question. I mean, it's saying you should keep Shabbat. Um, but what, is, what does it really mean to keep Shabbat? What are the rules of Shabbat? What's, what's, what's its purpose? Why is it called a sign? It generates a ton of questions. So I think most people pick up the Torah, as you know well, they, they don't understand it. They think that Adam is a, human, is a person. So Adam was a person who got created, but they don't know that it, that the rabbis of our tradition don't necessarily read it that way. They, they, might, they might see the word Adam as just talking about the creation of humanity. They could talk about what it means as, what is, how did the image of God within the human being emerge over an evolution from animals? And you know, we looked at a quote that I love about when God said, let us make the human, it, uh, God was talking to all of the things that had already been created and then asked, it, and they said, well, why are you talking to us? And God said, I need you all to contribute something that I'm gonna make the human out of, which is a fascinating thing when you think our DNA is actually made out of genetic material that came from other organisms, that came from previous incarnations of organisms and came from organisms that merged together to make a communal organism that, led, that was an ancient ancestor of ours so that we do incorporate uh, genetic material from ancient eukaryocytes and, and bacteria and other life forms preserved in our DNA. And so that the idea that, well, that's just a modern reading. Well, it's not necessarily a modern reading. What makes you think you know what the Bible is saying be, just because you read in the English, God made Adam? Well, that looks like a proper name. So it's a guy named Adam. And, and could it well be that you are just really, really influenced by the movie Frankenstein? And that like your brain is working based on the context of, uh, of the Frankenstein myth, and you're just seeing God as the mad scientist putting Adam together. Um, the rabbis didn't necessarily see it that way. And if you read the largest section of theology in the Middle Ages that we produced, the Zohar, very, very, very long, they actually don't see the Adam as the creation of the human being at all, or as an actual physical organism. They actually view the creation of Adam as a Adam Kadmon, the creation of the primordial Adam, which is actually the energy signature of the cosmos. So they, they actually view Genesis 1 as a version of the Big Bang that many of you have already known and studied, which it's describing God producing an explosion from within God that creates the fragments of energy of, that produce the universe, and therefore, the story of Adam within it is not the story of the creation of a human being. It is actually, it, it's a disguised story of the process of the creation of the galaxies and of what you and I call physics. So it's really easy to pick up the Torah and just be like, I know what it means. Adam was a person. Eve was made from half of Adam. And therefore, Eve serves Adam. And anything else is just not reading it the way God intended it. And so 
when we look at Leviticus chapter 12, I'm going to suggest that most people do not think beyond the obvious when it comes to one of the most potentially offensive parts of all of the Torah, which is the notion of impurity. Why do women have impurity when they have their periods, right? Why do they need to go and get clean and wash it off? Why when you get, um, you get sick, you, get, uh, you have an infection, suddenly you've got impurity and you can't be with the rest of us. Boy, that's a horrible thing. That's a mean thing. Um, in other words, the proper translation of tame or tuma, the state of impurity or impurity itself, the proper translation should be impurity, which I don't think is a good translation at all. And many scholars would agree with me. Don't read it as impurity. Well, then what is it? Ickiness. Well, or as a, one famous rabbi once put it, most people think of it as cooties. It's cooties. So someone's got cooties. You know what? They gave a woman did childbirth. She's got the cooties. You've got an infection. You got the cooties. You have a wound that won't heal. Got the cooties. You touched a dead body. Cooties. So it is a male-centered disgust with things that are icky, and that give you cooties, and therefore it is. It, it's this thing. It's it's dirty. It's an it's a dirtiness. I'm not going to be able to prove to you that that just as I can't prove to you about any of it, that anyone who thinks that's true, I can show you right now that they're totally wrong and they don't know what they're talking about. Just as I said last week with Revelation, if one says, I disagree with everything Rav Nadav's quoting from all these philosophers and this, I, I just think God spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting like he was on a cell phone and it was a voice and, and Moses just said, well, what, you know, let me write down some more God and if anyone poked their head in, it was a voice and this idea that uh, the Bible has a total, the Torah has a totally different conception of what it means to commune with God. And it's not dictation. Then, um, God, then I can't prove that they're wrong and I'm right. So here we go. I'm not going to say it's entirely wrong. And you may already know what I'm going to say because I, I, I can't imagine I'm the first person came up with it. I'm not that special. So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, let's look at Leviticus 12. Go tell the Israelites, when a woman at childbirth bears a male, she shall be clean, unclean. So they use the word unclean. I don't want to use that word. She will be unclean for seven days. She shall be unclean as at the time of her menstrual infirmity. This is definitely a misogynistic text. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. She shall remain in a state of blood purification for 33 days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing, nor enter the sanctuary until her period of purification is completed. And if she bears a female, she shall be unclean two weeks as during her menstruation. Let me share with you um, a counter idea to my claim, and then I'll continue with my, my proposal. So how do we understand these things? What are the things that make you impure? You touch a dead body, you're impure. You touch the things that belong to someone who just died. This is straight from the Torah. And I'm sorry I didn't have time to um, put together a source sheet, so you have to trust me a little bit. If you touch a dead body, then you are impure for a certain period of time. If you touch the belongings 
of someone who just died. I don't mean like a year later. I mean, in the, in the words of the Torah that are within their tent, the vessels and belongings of someone within their home uh, after their death, you also become impure or dirty or whatever the word means. Let's just say tame. If you have a, um, so a, a zav can make you tame. Zav is semen. So if a male has, if a, if a male ejaculates semen, whether in a dream or through masturbation, or um, I'm going to wait for the, the, the next one, is whether it's through intercourse or question, then they are now ritually impure, usually just for the day. So it's usually until nightfall, and then they, uh, they can bathe. Uh, if it's an act of sexual intercourse, the rabbis debate this a bit. It's not clear if the semen did not escape. It, is it, is that considered a, a semen impurity condition? The answer is likely yes. And so if sexual intercourse has occurred, both, the, both partners in the act are impure until nightfall. And then at some point at nightfall in the morning, they wash themselves and then they're pure again. There, there's that purity. And there is the menstrual period produces uh, while in the Torah, let's not talk about the way it's done by the Orthodox today, but in the Torah itself, for the duration of, um, of the menstrual blood coming out, the woman is in a state of impurity. Once there's no more, uh, once the period is over, there's no waiting period. She can pretty much go directly to the mikvah and then she's no longer in a state of impurity. That, that got expanded by the rabbis to over the centuries and millennia, it kept getting expanded and expanded from the actual period of the blood to a period before, just in case, and especially a long period afterward, just to make sure. And I'm against those restrictions because I think they are adding laws to the Torah in the name of adding a fence. And I think that I am skeptical of all attempts to add fences and fences around halakha because I think it obscures the meaning of the halakha originally and therefore violates the principle of adding laws to the Torah. But so you've got the, you've got the period. And then if there is essentially, and I'm making this simple, if there's fluid that is oozing from you, you enter a state of impurity as pronounced by the priest. And so it largely, like we've already, we read in, in, in Leviticus already, things like wounds that are not healing uh, and, 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 and skin infections um, or other sorts of infections. And basically it's a lot of ancient sort of um, priestly manuals in Leviticus, but that's really the bottom line. The bottom line is they're looking, if, if, if your wound looks like it's not oozing, then even if it's not healed, you're, you're no, they, they pronounce you pure again. And so that it's the actual emission of the fluid that seems to be key. And yes, they have a sense of when you're still contagious or not, or something like that. So that's mixed into it. Okay, so that's kind of covering all the cases. So now, what is a view that I respect that's not just like, well, it's the cooties or it's a bunch of misogyny because it applies to men too. So, I mean, not a lot, but it still applies to men. Men are usually the ones burying dead bodies. Men can be touching vessels and men certainly emit semen. So that like, it's not strictly limited to misogyny. 
Um, although you can say from the childbirth one that it's clearly misogynistic because if you have a girl, the period is longer for being impure than for a male. And so anyone who picks up Leviticus without Nadav or without thinking more broadly, clearly misogynistic. Nadav, give me a view that you think is, and, and I'm not reading the chats because I'm looking at my text, so if, if there's a chat, no, I'll get to it, but I won't hear it now. You'll have to interrupt me. Uh, is that, is the, is the anthropologist Mary Douglas? And I'm still to this day, having read her at the age of 21, I, I don't know what to make of what she said. So I'll tell you what she said. I'm not gonna dismiss it. It may be smarter than anything I can come up with, but there's a part of me that views it as reductionistic and, and, and not entirely right. Mary Douglas is, was an anthropologist who was famous for covering tribes like the New Era. What she said is you should relate the human body is the symbolic image of the social body, of the corporate body. I'm speaking as Mary Douglas, but I have a terrible British accent. If I would quote your rabbi, Rav Nadav, what I would agree with is that he has often said that what God is and what the image of God is, is essentially the ecological system in which we live. And so therefore our body is in the image of God because it's different organisms who have come together to make a whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. They've created a new thing that is capable of thinking and sentience and, and will and discernment that was greater than just adding up the mitochondria and the organelles and the genetic material into, into a vat. They actually created an ecological system. And your rabbi has said before that the whole point of Exodus, when it talks about the creation of the Mishkan, the whole reason we have a synagogue, the whole reason the synagogue is like the, 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 the circulatory system of the life, the nefesh life system of Judaism, the reason we need synagogues, the reason the synagogue needs everyone's support is because when the temple was functioning and in our synagogues, it is where the individuals come together to create an organism. The, the synagogue itself is a body. It's an organism. It has currents flowing in it of those who need aid and tzedakah because they're in a temporary state of needing redemption and help. And there's a flow to them. So some of the animals, as they're cut up and slaughtered and butchered, they get some of the food and they get some pigeons and they get some of this. And those public servants come in and they get their pieces. So that we, our school teachers, because the Levites were teachers, and our healthcare professionals, especially Levitical socialized medicine, that they can eat and they're not starved because they're not relying just on donations. And, and that you have people coming to, when, when someone wants to celebrate a simcha, it's not about individual families in a social contract to say, I pay my taxes, leave me the hell alone. But rather when, when someone's celebrating a wedding or a bar mitzvah or a simcha, they come to the temple and they, they sponsor a kiddush and they feed everybody. And all you need is 52 of those and you've got 52 kiddushes and you have a whole community being sustained by people who are publicly sharing and celebrating. You create a community that is like a body, Mary Douglas would say. So she said that, I agree with your rabbi, Rav Nadav, that the image of God is basically a body. 
In fact, the Kabbalists said Adam, Adam Kadmon, the primordial Adam, was the creation of the cosmos because the cosmos essentially could be thought of as a body. Oh, and, and you could think of the laws of physics as God's brain. And you could think of the, the stars and the stardust as the matter, as the, as the flesh. And so their attitude is, she's, she's like, Rav Nadav and I are in 90% agreement. It's a body. And therefore, what this stuff is, is if you see a body that is oozing fluid of light, it is disturbing because it will inevitably, we are all imprinted with this model consciously, subconsciously, and unconsciously. It's too disturbing to take because it'll make us feel insecure about our society itself. Therefore, and we just read it last week, and I didn't comment on it because it was a bat mitzvah, but last week's Torah portion and more is probably the most disturbing one for me of any of them. It's the one I have the hardest time with making an apologetic excuse for, like I'm doing in this course. Because it actually said that if the, the, a serving Kohen, the one who is publicly in the middle, taking the animal, accepting your offering, you know, giving the blessing for the community. They can't be blind. They can't have an eye poked out. They can't be disfigured. And they can't be a hunchback. They have to look the part. And I hate that. So it is definitely the part that you will not hear, I hope, ever from me, that will not be the ninth most misunderstood thing in the Torah. And I say, oh, it has a beautiful way of understanding it. You just missed the point, which is really what I'm doing in these other sessions. I disagree. I, I, I don't like it at all. But Mary Douglas would say, the reason you don't like it at all is because it doesn't fit your model, Nadav, but it fits mine, which is that if the president of the United States was at the very center and that when people came forth, they're streaming into the temple by the thousands on Shavuot or Pesach or Sukkot, and they're streaming out the other door, and they're making their offerings, and they're saying, my father was a wandering Aramean, and I've been blessed, and, and so therefore I'm going to share. And the person standing there, the President of the United States, was like a hunchback, or like had oozing stuff out of their eye. It would be too disturbing, Mary Douglas Wright. My only apology, and so my support for Mary Douglas is, let's be honest, for all of our inclusion, how many actors and actresses and celebrities are hard to look at? I mean, let's just be honest. You know, we can talk about body positivity because it's real, but like, let's say who, who gets the jobs? I mean, so you can ask me, it's like on some level, the most public thing you ever saw in the ancient world prior to television and radio or in all of that was basically making your pilgrimage and going to the center of everything and seeing the high priest in his costume. And so if the high priest was like kind of disturbing, um, it could be disturbing. So that's what Mary Douglas says. I still, she, she may be right. So any kind of oozing is disturbing. And, but I don't want to, so I say I struggle with her view. There may be things about it that are important, but there's still a part of me that thinks it's reductionistic. It is too simple. It's reduced, it, 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 it's boiling something complex down to something too simple. And one of the things that I would, say about that, and she kind of includes this, is that in the Torah, there's no question that in the ancient world, 
body fluids have power. So for example, in the famous case of Moses and the bridegroom becoming the bridegroom of blood, it looks like either Moses is, it looks like Moses is really, really, really sick. And his wife, Zipporah, circumcises their son and takes the blood and puts it on Moses and it heals Moses. The mezuzah on our doorpost, which, he, which on some level superstitiously is meant to protect us, still has its roots in spreading the blood on the doorposts in the, uh, uh, to keep the, the angel of death out or, the, or God out, the plague out. So that the blood of life, semen is the blood of life, menstrual fluid is the blood of life, straight up blood is the blood of, blood of life. And yeah, you and I don't think of like um, pus as the blood of life. But nevertheless, if we think of the body as a set of tubes, the, the things coming out of the body are including life juices and childbirth juices and placenta and all of that. It has power. So it's not, the one thing Mary Douglas I'm not sure about is that I don't know if it should be related to things that we find disgusting or things that we find disturbing because the actual examples of these things that make you impure are not exactly dirty things like, ew, um, I can't believe when I finally made my way to the high priest, he had, you know, he had stuff oozing out of his eye. I've lost my faith in Am Israel. This can't be right. This is too disturbing to my unconsciousness, my subconscious. My attitude is, but wait, I mean, like, but these other examples are actually power fluid. You know, they're life-giving fluids. And we have this whole thing in the ancient world that they're powerful. So that's the one criticism I have. And now I'm going to give you my answer. My answer for this is simply this. I'm going to apply the principle of the philosophical school, you're getting all my philosophy, of pragmatism. Pragmatism is, it's not the same thing as when I say someone is pragmatic. It is a specific philosophical approach. Largely American. Some people say it is the only uniquely American philosophical movement in the history of philosophy. And it is unbelievably brilliant. They're, they're, it's the best. So mainly started by Charles Sanders Peirce, a brilliant American philosopher, made famous by William James, the brother of Henry James. And William James, one of America's greatest philosophers. So if you read William James's books on pragmatism, Charles Sanders Peirce, and then in the late 20th century, Richard Rorty, who might consider to be the most brilliant philosopher of the last half of the 20th century, pragmatism is the view of this. When you are trying to understand a concept that seems really metaphysical, God, holiness, the good, ritual impurity, spirit, when you're trying to understand, it's not abstract, but metaphysical, like concepts that are like, what the hell do you mean by that? How the hell do you define that? Sin. So they're like, oh, sin. Do I put someone with sin under a microscope and try to figure out what sin is? Do I try to say, oh, show me the things that have God on it so I can investigate what is the definition of God so that if God is in the world, I know where to look. Their attitude is you're not going to make a lot of progress because the history of philosophy hasn't trying to define metaphysical concepts. But what you could do, if you really want to understand them, is make a list of what practical consequences they have in the real world. 
So rather than say, well, I need to know exactly what this sin is, like how, what, if, you're, if you have sin or you're clean of sin, what am I looking for? What's different? Their attitude is, what's the practical difference it would make, whether you, someone has sin or someone doesn't have sin? And so if the answer is, well, if someone has sin, they need to, they need to go to 12-step because they need some help in figuring out how to get rid of their addiction or they need a psychologist, or they need a rabbi, or they need a teacher to show them, you know what, you keep screwing up in this way in the world, I don't know. You keep, you keep uh, putting plastic out into the universe and it's just filling up and killing the fish. Like, you need to be educated. So like, one thing could be, they need retraining. So then they say, don't define sin by looking for it under a microscope or trying to define it as what, what is in this metaphysical property. Say, sin is a word you use to describe people that need retraining. And then you're much more likely to understand it. So let me apply it here. And it's true of God too, by the way, and that's a, that's a complicated one. Instead of saying, tame is an impurity like a dirtiness, or a, yeah, an impurity that attaches to the body. It's, it's cooties. You can't see it. You can't taste it. You can't touch it but it's the cooties in there, and but it's an invisible, and if I touch the dead body, oops, I just contracted some of the invisible cooties from the dead body into me. And that's really the way most scholars have been trying to treat this for millennia. And I take a different approach, which is, I'm gonna ask the pragmatic question, which is, what difference does it make that I am in a state of impurity? Instead of looking for the cooties or saying I've got them, so if I have cooties, what's, what does it mean? So what is the actual practical consequences in the world for being in a state of impurity? The answer is you are in timeout. The only effect, the, well, I should say the only, I, there could be others. The main, especially with disease, just in terms of like you get treatment, but the practical effect, or if you are declared in a state of Tame, what does it mean? it means you can't join in public activities, period. If you are, in addition to that, you are designated as having tsarat, you're designated as having a disease or possibly infectious disease, there could be an additional separation that you're not even allowed to shelter in place within the camp. Because in many cases you are, you just have to stay in your tent. You can't be in public. But the only thing that Tame means is you can't join in public activities, period. For this reason, most biblical scholars will insist that English translations never be like this one. They never say that you have infirmity or that you are unclean seven days. They insist that you add an extra word. So they shall be ritually unclean seven days. They shall be ritually unclean at the time of a period because they specifically say that the words do not mean dirty and they don't mean impure as a semi-physical or metaphysical property. They are very clear, even the Bible scholars, of it meaning that you are in the category of not being allowed to go to work or school or synagogue you are in the category of not being able to go to the shuk. You can't go to the marketplace. You can't go to work. You can't go to the synagogue. You can't go to a party. 
You can't go to a wedding reception. And so therefore, really simply put, I translate, I just think the word tame should be translated as timeout. Tame, timeout. And then what would we think if we read all of these things differently? Now let's look back at the categories again, and maybe we can notice something that speaks to the modern soul. Instead of picking up Leviticus and being like, this is the most offensive thing I've ever read in my life, what would it mean to pick it up and say, I'm struggling with these same issues? So what are the things when I say I am fighting for justice in the United States of America in 2020, and these are the issues that I'm going to pick for my candidates that I'm going to vote for in primaries and election. What, 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 what's in my soul to change the body politic and society? Well, I'll tell you what they are. I'm in favor of fam paid family leave. I think that someone who gives birth should not have to go back to work. And I think that they should be able to be able to stay at home. And I think they should be paid for that. I think they should get a childbirth timeout. And I think we should support them in it. But Nadav, you're saying they should have the option of going back to work. You know what? Maybe I'm with the Torah on this one. Maybe they shouldn't have an option because I don't know about you. But I don't actually believe when they tell grocery school, um, store workers, you know what, or nurses, you know what, if you're scared of coming in during the coronavirus, it's okay, you don't have to we won't count it against you. I don't believe it. I don't believe that they won't count it against them. I think that's a lie we want to believe. So what I think in this case is, I think there should be a rule that you don't go back to work because I think it, people would discriminate and say, well, you know, Lynn went back to work after one week and you're taking two months. You know, I think that people notice. So that if you say that this is basically childbirth timeout. And if you say, well, Nadav, you're not handling the fact that for a girl, it's longer than for a boy. Yeah, I'm not handling that right now. Like, I'm, I, I mean, I do think in that case, it goes, it has to do with the fact that because a woman is naturally a vehicle of the life fluids. And I mentioned that, like, that's a real thing in the ancient world that blood and menstrual fluid and semen are all considered to be like the part of the miracle of life magic. That yes, I think that probably the, the childbirth, the maternity leave over the birth of a daughter is greater because of an ancient association with women as life givers. I do. But for whatever reason, it is maternity leave. Well, Nadav, give me some other examples. You know, you're sick. You have an infection. You know what? required medical leave. Like, I'm sorry, but you can't come into work. Now, I know that I have sick leave, right? If I get sick, I can call in. But you would be pretty shocked to know that according to most studies, people that work at restaurants, Chipotle, your waitress, um, professional uh, surveys that have been done of them in private, that the vast majority of them say that they worked this past year, even when they were infectiously sick. Like they would be vomiting in the bathroom and then making your burrito and then bringing you your order. So the truth, and because they can't afford not to come in and they can't afford, I already got sick two months ago. I'm going to tell them I'm sick again. I'm not going to get a promotion and I'm going to get fired. 
so that the Torah then adds in, if you've, you got like a wound that won't heal, you have required medical leave and you're going to be tended to. But no, you can't go to work. No, you can't go to school. No, you can't go to the party. No, you can't go to the wedding. Time out. Child, maternity leave, required sick leave. No, and again, no options. Not like, well, you can if you want. No, Torah's like required. Dead body. Now, and more starts, pardon me. Last week's parasha started with the fact that the high priest, if the high priest has an immediate relative die and they are on active duty, they should not touch the dead body because they need to be in a state of purity to fulfill the temple functions. And almost everyone reads that, it's so cruel, it's so cruel, the high priest can't care for the dead. It's not saying in all cases, but it is saying basically for the period that the Kohen is on duty, they can't immediately bury their dead because then they wouldn't be able to do their function. But that's an exception. If someone dies in your family, you get bereavement leave. So it is assumed that your responsibility as a family member is to bury someone's dead, to bury your kin. And if you're not able, you're, you, you know, someone's kin is not near them or they, they don't have any next of kin, then those who volunteer to do so, who are asked by the family or last wishes to do so, they get the bereavement leave. They get the, they get the death leave. So we have to bury our kin. And those who take responsibility, it's not that I got the cooties from the corpse. I think all of that investigation goes down the wrong avenue, but most, most scholars go down that wrong avenue. And I think that the pragmatists are right, which is this is about a category of interaction. It's, a, it's about the consequences of being labeled as such. It is not about the uh, cause of the label uh, per se so that you have bereavement leave. And then if you bury your dead, and you also have the Shiva, you have the seven day bereavement leave, and then you have a 30 day period of, and then you say, well, why did the vessels in someone's tent give you cooties? And I'm, you know, I'm looking at all of you, and I know you're thinking to yourself, has anyone ever had to clear out, you know, mom's apartment? Has anyone ever had to clear out a loved one's home? of the things that they left when they died. I think that is a period in which you need to be off of work. I think that is one of the most emotionally intense things that happens. By the way, it's also physically intense. It is really, really, really time consuming and draining to go through someone's closets and garages and books and to try to figure out this needs to go to the school and that needs to go to the rabbi and this I think we just recycle and this goes to goodwill and like and we have to make calls to see if anyone wants this and we have to make calls to see like it's we should have a whole rite of passage for it it's more intense than bar bar mitzvah it should be added to our lists of the major life cycle events and I think it's amazing that the Torah is saying when you touch those objects, you need a week off. You gotta have a week off. Like, like you, 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 you can't go there. You can't go to work the next day. You can't come home from work and do this. And so I think that it is recognizing something very real that I've experienced. And uh, so I think that that deserves its own time out from public obligation and interaction. And, and then the sex one is a complicated one even for the rabbis to, for a seminal omission, but it's only till nightfall. So, so I, I mean, 
that's a separate discussion, but that's not where you get, I mean, to the extent in which you are not able to touch the, you're not able to go to synagogue until the next day. It, it's not a very long period to be discussing. So, and then in terms of Nida, in terms of a woman's period, I think that it is a required period of abstinence for both parties. And while it may restrict women who wish to engage in sexual activity during their period, and I mean, it's not giving them a woman's choice, it does give them protection from men who would wish to have sexual access during that period that maybe a woman does not wish to have sexually available during that period. So it is a timeout from sexual interaction. And so those who focus on the idea that it's just a way of calling women icky and dirty and unclean, and therefore they have to go wash off, is not picking up on the fact that going and washing off is a ritual action to distinguish between you're basically going back to work, you're going back to school, you're going back to family parties and gatherings from a period of getting time alone. And we know the books about Rachel's tent and, and, and Maggie Anton and all the stuff that, you know, there have been women who've really embraced that time to have a break from, from men. Um, but there are also women who find it offensive, and I don't want to minimize those who find that break offensive. So my translation of Tuma is timeout, uh, or Tame. If someone says, oh, you got, you're, in, you're, in a, you're in a state of Tame, that means you're in a state of grief leave, medical leave, sexual timeout during Nida, some of the things that I think we should, are real issues in our time. And I think that it is a case where we can turn Leviticus around rethink the word with the best of what scholars have told us, which is it is a ritual state, not a physical state. And when you say, well, we have something called metaphysical, which is a fancy word we use to describe something you can't see, hear, or touch, but is sort of like physical, you end up, you, you, you end up with no adequate explanation. Mary Douglas probably does the best you can do, but even she's not really giving you a comprehensive explanation. I don't want to go off topic, but the, the issue about whether a hunchback or someone blind can be a Kohen, I think it's highly problematic. And I, I think it's worthy of a really good conversation sometime about whether that attitude, which I hate, is nevertheless an attitude that is widespread in our own society. So rather than just criticize the ancient Israelites for it, maybe worth looking in our own hearts about the way we view celebrities and others. There was an actress, I forget who it was, who said, you know, 33 for, for me means I'm thinking of good roles for maybe one or two more years. If I were a male, it would mean I'm thinking of good roles for another 30 or 35 years. Uh, it's not like something we don't practice in our own society. Are we stigmatizing the women or are we trying to remove some stigma? You know what I mean? There's stigma if you decide that I want two months or I want two months to figure out whether I'm coming back to work. I want two months for me to be with my child before... I think about work by making a rule that you can't come back to work yet. In some way, I, I hope that that takes away the stigma for people, for women, you know, because otherwise they'll be judged. Why aren't you back? I, I remember, and this is not a flattering story, but when Marav was born, it was such a difficult birth. And Lynn and I were so exhausted. And, and I just told someone else to do the service. And someone said to me, shouldn't you, Shouldn't you go to services and thank God for the birth of a healthy baby? And I just wanted to say, like, 
I'm, I'm not there right now. I want to be with the baby and be with my wife. Mm -hmm. And they said to me, I really don't think you understand halakha. Oh, great. No, there's, there's no halakha that tells me I need to go to the synagogue right away. I mean, the idea of a baby naming is the men, you know, the women stay home. You don't need the baby if, if, if it's a girl. If it's a girl, the women all stay home and the man goes to shul, takes an aliyah, and says, thank God. You know, like I'm important. I, I think you're more important if you're home with your kid, you know, and helping your wife. I, I just do. And also, like, who's to say that I don't have subjectivity? Who's to say that I don't want to be there? You know what? There's no law that says I got to show up five minutes later. I, for, and, and thank God, I can go in 30 days. I can go in three weeks. I'll, I'll get to shul. Like, I was being stigmatized for not showing up. Mm -hmm. I would have rather the rule that says I'm not allowed to show up. Mm -hmm. Rather, I say, well, halakha says I can't. It says Lynn can't, but I mean, if you're going by the ancient rules, but it wouldn't say it about me. I think that to view it as taking away stigma rather than adding stigma is really helpful. Also, um, you've got, if, you're, if you want to establish norms, they have to apply to everybody. They have to be fixed. <laughs> it's very hard for a norm to be established through a suggestion or through an option. And I'm not, so like, yeah, I know we, we, we see liberty as, as please don't control me. But you're right, it's trying to establish cover and, and a norm that this is just what we do. I don't like the commonly voiced opinion that the reason that women seem to be more stigmatized with these rules is because women are closer to God because they're life givers, unlike men who we have to go to shul to, and study hard to get close to God. I really don't buy that. And I think that that is a really clever way to put down women by suggesting that you're complimenting them. So the fact that well, women, women don't have to be rabbis, women don't get an education because they're already close to God because they have their periods and afterbirths. That, you know, as a conservative rabbi, I mean, don't give me that. Give me the fact that, you know, because again, men also can, can, can be tame. I can produce semen that I shouldn't be going to be a rabbi. Like, I mean, I can, come on, give me a break. So I don't want to romanticize it, but this idea of the way it, it creates a social norm that gives people a break. And rather than oh, the person who lifts up the book and reads it says, when, it's, when anything says you can't do something, it means it's saying you're bad. We're stigmatizing you. We're excluding you. And I got to tell you, I love to go to synagogue and I like to go to weddings and I like to go to work. But, you know, I don't feel totally deprived if I get a week off. <laughs> I mean, so like, I don't know why we're assuming that, that having a norm that says people stay home, that we're punishing them. I mean, how, it never says it's a punishment, you know? Oh, because they're icky. They're, 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 they're full of their, their dirtiness. And I'm like, it doesn't say that. There's a different word for being dirty. You're not washing off the dirt. It's a ritual state. It's a distinction between being in publicly in public gatherings and not being in public gatherings. That's all it's regulating. That is all it's regulating. So don't read too much into it, but consider what it's doing.
I do want to honor Lisa's chat. Uh, Lisa shared with us that, but why are you so unwilling to acknowledge that it's a patriarchal tradition? That's a very fair thing to say. And I just want to say that it is a patriarchal tradition. I, I, I agree. I'm, I'm not saying it, but let me put it this way. And I'm not saying I have a perfect answer to that. I'm trying to honor that point with not an easy response. I am not saying these rules weren't written by men. And I'm not saying that there aren't problems with the fact that these rules were written by men. There are. But I am saying, and I could be wrong because it's a hypothesis, and hypotheses can be wrong. I am saying that they're not saying that women are dirty and that women are more prone to dirtiness like sick people. I think that that may be an imposition because we're so concerned about the fact that it's written by men that we think men have puerile, juvenile attitudes toward women. And I can tell you that some of the, from reading the Talmud, I can tell you that that is sometimes true. Some of the rabbis of the rabbinic tradition seem to me to have very puerile views. And a lot of the rabbis of the tradition don't. I think it's probably true of a lot of men today. It's probably also true of women too. I'm not trying to make equal blame, but I have noticed in my interactions, whether it's with feminism or with friends and family, because I'm not a woman, that women are capable of being wrong as well. And women are capable of having shallow views of Torah and um, have, having misunderstandings and projecting things onto it, I, I don't think are necessarily there. But there's no question that men have controlled the, and from the very beginning, the voice of Torah. It, it's simply true. And I think it has to be addressed. Um, and, and, I think, and I think we're trying. I mean, I, I think that, I, I think we're at a process I hope unfolds greater and greater and greater. What I think it means to engage in the tradition is to view it with a sense of charity. In other words, is the text talking about real problems that real people face? Exploring God and Judaism, I am not fundamentally exploring something different than from what my ancestors were doing. Again, I approach the text saying, it is trying to help us. It is trying to say something powerful, profound, and good. It is, it is beyond what I merely, I want it to teach me something that I don't already know too. Like, so that in that sense, I think then the text reveals my one patriarchal sermon about this issue I gave this year was um, back in Genesis. And what the point of that sermon was, was that Rebecca, and it's a very subtle point. So I'm asking for like your best brain cells to engage. It is not easy. This stuff's hard. Rebecca basically does all of the great things that Abraham does. And it is clear as black and white. So that the things we praise Abraham doing, welcoming in the strangers and feeding them, even if they're angels and they don't eat, Rebecca does all of it. Um, going to a land not her own, even as a young teenager, she does it. So over and over again, there are so many things Rebecca does, exactly what Abraham does. But it says that God spoke to Abraham, and it doesn't say God spoke to Rebecca. And so the argument in my sermon was the following, and it is crazy subtle, possibly too, as my as British philosopher would say, my darling Ravnadav, far too subtle. 
<laughs> you know, uh, so like it is open to critique. My criticism was this. Rather than say the Bible screwed up by not saying that God spoke to Rebecca too, could it be that the Bible is challenging us to say, just because it doesn't say God spoke to Rebecca, does that mean that God didn't speak to Rebecca? Like, is it saying to us that how dare you suggest she is having, she's fully in relationship with God and she fully becomes the leader of the tribe? Because as you all know, Isaac and no leader of the tribe. Rebecca definitely is wearing the pants in that family, as we used to say. Is the Bible challenging us to stop reading it so simplistically that God only speaks to you if it says so? And you don't have a relationship with God otherwise. So what I do with the Rebecca story is, my attitude is, the Bible's playing a trick on me. It's trying to say, okay, it's written by men. I mean, the, men are the conveyors of its words. That's what I mean by it's written by men. And so they'll tend to put in things that point out that God's spoken to men. But what it means to see the Bible in an egalitarian fashion is to say, the Bible's trying to trick you. It showed you all along that Rivka is doing all the same things Abraham does. And if you have half a Rashi brain, if you have half a Rashi brain, you should have noticed. And you should have said, Rivka is like, she's, up, she's the covenant with God. She is completely communing with God. She's, she's Abraham again, right, with two X chromosomes. And so it's challenging you to notice it. And if you don't notice it, maybe the problem's with you. And not problem with and not with the text. It's a very subtle point, far too subtle in many ways. But it is certainly the situation that we're in, which is at least we can notice it. And rather than say, therefore the Torah is bad because it doesn't point out she talks with God, rather than say, I see it now, which is those men are forgetting to point out that the women are completely in touch with God. But now that we actually see it, the Torah is showing it. The Torah is showing that the women are just as in touch with God as the men. We just have to make sure we notice it and, and, and then fill, figure it out. I mean, the classic example, of course, is Miriam. Miriam, in the, in the Talmud, the rabbis say, of course, Miriam got married and had a family. Bullshit, right? Miriam's a career woman who stayed single beginning to end. Let's be honest. So I don't believe the Midrash on that. Miriam is the single career woman and she's a prophetess, and she's in touch with God. And why we don't have more of her words in the Torah, shame on the male patriarchal tradition. Because it's right there in view that she is a leader, she's a prophetess, and she ain't having a family. And that model is laid out in Torah, and we should be noticing it and honoring it and acknowledging it. But why isn't there as much on Miriam as there is on Aaron? You're right, that sucks. And that's because it's a patriarchal tradition. I mean, that's true. So that's my way of, of trying, to, trying to handle it. So I just want to honor that those who challenge me, you're right to do so. When I try to make misunderstandings go away, I don't want to make genuine problems go away. I'm, I'm, I, I don't want to be that. So, so keep me honest, okay? Thanks for joining us today.